This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Monday, April 18th. I'm Julia Caulfield. In today's headlines, searching for permafrost, G is for government previews Telluride Town Council, Capital Conversation talks housing, and a mountain weather forecast. For over 4.5 billion years, the Earth has been spinning in space. It's home to all sorts of flora and fauna, hosting environments from windswept sub-zero tundras to balmy tropical beaches. That is something to celebrate. As Earth Day approaches, the Wilkinson Public Library and the Pinhead Institute are joining forces to explore the icier climes. Permafrost is frozen ground. And it's ground that has water in the air spaces and the soil. And then all of it, the soil's frozen, the water's frozen, the whole space is frozen. And it's permanently frozen as opposed to freezing and thawing on an annual basis or because it's cold at night. That's Dr. Heidi Stelzer, a professor of environmental sustainability at Fort Lewis College. Stelzer will be in Telluride this week for a discussion and screening of her film, Searching for Permafrost, a short film looking at scientific expedition in the search of permafrost in the San Juans. It's incredible to think about the history of our planet and that water and soil got frozen, let's go with eons ago. Who knows exactly how long ago this water and soil got frozen? And that frozen ground has value in its frozen state. And oftentimes we don't think about that. Water in its frozen state has value. And when it shifts and it becomes liquid water, uh, it moves. It, um, In the case of permafrost, it is water in the San Juan Mountains that could move through rock that wouldn't otherwise have rock, um, have water moving through that rock. And in Alaska... Uh, It literally, permafrost is like the ground underneath the ground that keeps the lakes in place. Stelter acknowledges permafrost is more of an anomaly in the San Juans than in the Arctic, and she wants to learn more. I know that we're a really southern latitude mountain range, uh, really southern um, for how high we are, um, and still to have a lot of snowpack. And so it's another part of our mountain system that I'm curious about and I want to know more about is there is permafrost here. Where is it and how fast is it melting? Um, and we don't know those things. She says her study of permafrost in the San Juans began on a hike. I was on this one spot and I was like, there's permafrost here. It, I can, there, there was, if there isn't, there was. Because when you're looking across the land, there's all the signs. There's the hummocked grasses. There's tree uh, saw. There's ground that's cracked and lower than other ground. And all of those are features that I've seen in Alaska. But I was on a mountain hill slope at 36 degrees latitude. I think that's about where we're at um, for latitude here in Colorado. And I thought there must have once been permafrost here. And so that's another piece of the story is when we walk the land, what do we see on the surface that tells us something about the history of the land and what it once was? And how can we build knowledge from what's there and then towards what we want that land to be like? She notes the presence, lack of, or disappearance of permafrost in the San Juans won't inherently dramatically change the landscape. I'd like there to be permafrost in the San Juan Mountains uh, because there has been permafrost in the San Juan Mountains. I don't know that it's going to be a dramatically different mountain system if it's not there, 
but maybe it will feel different and it will look different because it certainly was like a moment of just like of joy when I walked across the land and I was like, oh my God, this looks like Alaska, but I'm in Colorado. And for me personally, because I love Alaska and I love walking landscapes there, um, it was a moment of joy. And so I would hope that that would happen for others. In addition to the scientific exploration of permafrost, Stelzer emphasizes the importance of connecting to the land. Mountains are a spiritual place in addition to being a place for curiosity, inspiration, and awe. And in the modern culture of science within the U.S., we often don't get to put science together with spirituality and recognize we can do both in ways that benefit that bigger picture of where and how do we connect with other people, how do we connect to the landscapes that sustain us, and how do we care for our planet. The Searching for Permafrost event will take place at the Wilkinson Public Library on Thursday, April 21st at 5.30 p.m. Other Earth Day celebrations include an Earth Day extravaganza on April 22nd, an Earth Love Poetry Walk on April 23rd, both through the library. True North will host an Earth Day cleanup for young people on April 23rd as well. The international flag of planet Earth is also dotting Main Street. Call-ups, appeals, town managers, oh my! Telluride Town Council has a lot on its agenda this week. In this installment of G is for Government, Council Member Geneva Shawnette gives a preview on what to expect. Hey Geneva, thanks for taking a couple minutes to chat with me today. Absolutely, let's get into it. So, Telluride Town Council is back on Tuesday with your regularly scheduled meeting. And there's a couple like pretty big things coming up on the agenda tomorrow, starting up with a call up in the morning. Can you share a little bit of like what that is and what y'all will be talking about? Yeah, so um, the town council has called up um, the Voodoo Lounge Affordable Housing Project um, from the HARC process. Uh, the project was going through the design review process through HARC and PNZ. Um, PNZ passed everything, and um, HARC had continued the application with some conditions uh, when town council called it up. So we will be sitting as the HARC board uh, to review this application, um, not taking into account anything other than the things that HARC would be taking into account. So uh, call-ups are part of our home rule charter. Um, if any two members of town council want to call something up from any lower board or commission, they are able to do so. And so that's what happened with this application. Um, you can find uh, the, in the packet, there's kind of the history of, of the um, of the application's journey through the design review process, and you can check out all the drawings and everything like that. Got it. So that will take the entire morning, and then y'all will break for lunch. You have kind of the, the nuts and bolts, presentations, proclamations, um, and the like. And then there's a few um, public hearings or, or action items that 
folks might also be interested in. Can you share what those are going to be? Yeah. So um, there's two ways that uh, an application for something can get bumped from a lower border commission up to town council review. And one is a call up and the other is an appeal. So we have a call up in the morning and in the afternoon we have an appeal um, which is uh, to the liquor licensing hearing for the Telluride Transfer Warehouse. So members of the public have um, appealed the final decision of the Liquor Licensing Authority. And uh, so town council will be sitting as the Liquor Licensing Authority to review um, the the Telluride Transfer Warehouse's liquor license. Um, I will be recused from that one because I work there. I bartend there. Got it. And then after that, um, probably something else that is interesting to the public, I think, is an action item um, at 325 in the afternoon. We're going to have the first reading of a new noise ordinance. Um, We had a couple work sessions on this topic uh, over the past few months and uh, gave direction to town staff to put together a new law for us to vote on. And this is our first chance at reviewing um, the copy and voting on that new law. And then, you know, separate from the items specifically of the meeting, but very important to how meetings run, uh, y'all will be introducing the new town manager for Telluride um, at the meeting tomorrow as well. Is that correct? Yeah, we'll actually probably do that first thing before we get into the um, voodoo call up. Uh, We're very pleased to welcome our new town manager, Scott Robson, to town. Um, We're really excited to have him and see what kind of um, fun new changes and uh, leadership he brings to this position with all of his great experience. Well, Geneva, thanks so much for taking a couple minutes to chat with me. All right. Thanks, Julia. Housing is on the brain across Colorado. This week on Capital Conversation, KOTO State House reporter Scott Franz talks about action on the state level to bring housing to locals. Hey Scott, thanks for taking a couple minutes to chat with me today. Hey, my pleasure, Julia. So last week we talked about a bill that would look to maybe reduce some of the costs for developers to build housing in Colorado. Um, But there's some other housing-related bills that are going through the legislature right now. And I was wondering if you could first just kind of give an overview on on what those are. Sure. Yeah, there there are a couple of other interesting ones uh, there, including one that would give grant money directly to local governments. You know, this might mean housing authorities. This might mean um, you know, projects that are underway that, that aren't, isn't so much a revolving loan fund as it is, um, you know, just an investment in a community um, to get housing off the ground. You know, there's also incentives for companies that um, make what are called uh, modular homes, thinking about, you know, tiny homes, homes that are, you know, easily manufactured and uh, at a much lower cost than, you know, say, buying a, an existing home. Um, in a very, um, very competitive housing market. Um, and then just today, um, there were several new bills announced, um, you know, that are related to housing, um, but more specifically to help people experiencing um, homelessness, including a $105 million grant program um, announced today, similar to the, 
the housing front that that they mentioned could also be used for for affordable housing initiatives. Um, so altogether, you know, we have upwards of six hundred million dollars worth of legislation currently moving its way um, through the process, uh, and that funding is expected to start going out, um, you know, as soon as as soon as this fall, probably. Does it seem, you know, I, I can't imagine that it's a very controversial issue of, you know, wanting Coloradans to have housing. That feels, I would assume, pretty straightforward for lawmakers. But is it something that's pretty bipartisan in support for putting this money from the state government towards these issues? Or are, you know, folks maybe feeling like it's something that should happen on the local level? I There are some Republicans here at the Capitol who have expressed you know, that, that view that they want local governments to solve it. But I'd say, you know, this process through the summer, you know, a lot of this work was done well before the session started to determine, you know, what kind of programs and initiatives they wanted to fund. Um, and they passed with, with strong bipartisan support. So I think when those bills ultimately go to their final votes, we'll see, um, you know, more bipartisan support than perhaps may be apparent at some of these early committee hearings. Um, but I think it is, you know, an issue that is affecting everyone's constituents, no matter their political background or even sometimes what part of the state they're from. So this is a an issue that has a lot of urgency um, behind it and that, you know, we expect to see, um, you know, kind of a broad political support for. You know, you said funds likely kind of starting to get into people's pockets maybe as early as this fall, what are lawmakers saying in terms of how they actually see this funding um, impacting their constituents' lives, you know, rather than just being conceptual money that is going to go out there? But but what are they, you know, saying when, when they think about um, the way that it will actually impact Coloradans? Right. I think that, that strikes at the heart of what most of our listeners are wondering, right? You know, that they may have been forced to leave a resort community already, or perhaps they're, you know, on the verge of doing so because of the cost of housing. Um, and what I am hearing from lawmakers on both sides of the aisle is still, you know, some attempts to manage expectations that, you know, they, they recognize that a lot of these housing developments take sometimes, you know, many months or years to get off the ground. And that's, you know, when they already have funds in hand, there's, um, you know, local government approvals. Um, you know, when I asked the governor very specifically last week, you know, when he was promoting these bills, you know, what, what are the expectations? You know, um, we've heard a lot about how they predict they'll be transformational. Um, and the most specific answer I've gotten so far is the prediction that they will create, um, and I'm quoting the governor here, hundreds of thousands of new units. Um, so, yeah, in the coming weeks, you know, that's something I'm working on to try and, you know, really get some predictions on the record and estimates and, you know, talking to people on the ground in the coming months um, in resort communities about, you know, how much this $600 million can really do and what kind of time frame, because I think it's important for people you know, who have been waiting for relief or some sort of state action to, to really know, you know, what this might do. Well, Scott, thank you for taking a couple minutes to chat with me. Hey, my pleasure, Julia. Thank you. That was KOTO Scott Franz reporting from Denver.
More than two dozen Colorado landmarks are on the verge of getting new names. The update is part of a nationwide push to remove derogatory and offensive terms from waterways, canyons, and mountains. A creek in Eagle County, known by a derogatory word for Native American women, could soon be renamed Colorado Creek. The name would honor a Ute chief who regularly visited the area. And a canyon in Dolores County named with a slur is poised to be called Sago Canyon, after a native wildflower in the area. A state board recently voted to recommend a total of 28 name changes. Governor Jared Polis will need to sign off on the list before sending it to a federal board for final approval. Colorado started stripping offensive names from its landmarks last year when it approved Mestaje Mountain in Clear Creek County. The new name honors a Cheyenne woman who served as a translator for Native Americans and settlers in the 1800s. The U.S. Department of Interior is considering emergency cutbacks to water supplies in Arizona, California, and Nevada. KUNC's Alex Hager explains... The measure is designed to keep more water in Lake Powell. The nation's second largest reservoir is at an all-time low. Further drops in water levels would mean a stop to hydropower generation at the Glen Canyon Dam. Katherine Sorensen is a water policy researcher at Arizona State University. The federal government generally prefers to let the stakeholders work things through. The fact that they're becoming involved in this manner points to real concerns that they must have, and they must um, view the situation as one of extreme difficulty. That difficulty comes from more than 20 years of drought driven by climate change. The cuts would reduce water supplies by about 7%, or enough to supply about half a million homes for a year. I'm Alex Hager. The Tree Fort Music Festival in Boise, Idaho, celebrated its 10th anniversary last month. The four-day event boasted more than 25,000 visitors, but still managed to maintain its indie and non-commercial feel. Will Walkie of KHOL Jackson, Wyoming, covered the festival and brings us this report on how its organizers are already looking into how to keep the magic going for the next decade. Jackson folk musician Missy Joe was all smiles after her set at Tree Fort's Wyoming Showcase, held in an open lot in Boise's downtown between a local brewery and a pub. Joe was not only happy to escape Teton County's mud season weather, she was also excited to support other Cowboy State musicians. The Gringos and Grammys is on right now and they're playing surf rock. Like, who in Wyoming would you think would be a surf rock band? And then the range that exists is, is so awesome. I think people think Wyoming is country music, but it's this interesting mix of everything. That unique mix is exactly what longtime Boise resident Eric Gilbert had in mind when he helped put the Tree Fort Festival together back in 2012. Gilbert now serves as festival director and talent booker, but he originally got inspired through his own experience as an artist. When I was 26, 27, my wife and I started a band, and she's very talented, I'm moderately talented, and uh, with a friend to start touring the country in a van, pretty DIY style, and just wanted to just kind of create the life experience that we wanted. And for me, it was like, okay, well, and, you know, and I, it was pretty organic, but there was some intention of like, okay, well, can we build the kind of scene in Boise that, that would make it feel good to live here? When the festival started, about 100 bands played at Tree Fort. This year, there were more than 500. Gilbert says somehow, audience members are convinced to come watch acts they've never heard of before. If you're looking for Taylor Swift, you're in the wrong place. 
for me, it's curated from the lens of, of artists and music nerds, <laughs> you know, like uh, college and community radio stations. And just because it's not popular doesn't mean it's not good. And so for at least five days a year, we've convinced a very much broader public to show up for a bunch of weird music, ba- you know, bands they wouldn't normally go see. And there's not just the tunes. The festival has also grown to include different so-called forts for food, storytelling, technology, and even yoga. Gilbert says that all happened over time through local partnerships. And I think some people think that was all part of the big plan. No, it was just like we just listened when other people from different niches in the community came like, hey, can we start a film for it? And like, yeah, will you do it? <laughs> the end product is an expanding event mirroring the explosion of Boise as a metro area. The festival was covered this year by national press, and half the attendees were from outside Idaho. The question is, how does Tree Fork keep this momentum going? A lot of stimulation going on, and y'all still made it here at 11, so thanks for being here. Um, the future of music festivals was the subject of a panel discussion the day after the Wyoming Showcase. 32 million people attend at least one U.S. music festival a year, according to Nielsen Music. There's a big opportunity for smaller markets beyond Coachella or Lollapalooza to get their own slice of the pie. Reese Tanimora lives in Seattle and works for a folk festival there. Festivals, whether folks will acknowledge it or not, funders and government leaders will acknowledge it or not, do create social impact. Can you say that again? <laughs> <laughs> Festivals create social impact. And event organizers are looking for more ways to create social change. Treefort is building a permanent venue for the first time this year, which will be their main stage for the next festival. Other events are trying to pay their staff more and even provide retirement funds for visiting artists. I would love to build out sort of uh, the safety net system, you know, like between festivals where if an artist is playing, you know, different venues and festivals throughout the year, then they're in the system. For Gilbert, creating more opportunities in bigger venues is great. But he doesn't want Treefort to lose that it factor that made it successful initially, that Boise charm. But he thinks some change is inevitable. It's hard. Like, I, I empathize with some of these bigger festivals, South by Southwest or something. At some point, it sort of leads, I'm guessing they lose control over some of the culture around it, right? And so that's something we put a lot of thought into. Something else he's put a lot of thought into is allowing space for diversity, artistically and racially, but also geographically. Taylor Craig is from the Wyoming Arts Council. She was offered six spots this year to showcase Cowboy State talent. 25 bands applied. It helps build the audiences of Wyoming musicians beyond, you know, their their town to promote them so they can continue to make a living being a musician um, and hopefully stay in Wyoming creating that music. Craig also says she was able to work well with Eric Gilbert and Treefort because they trusted her expertise to find the right applicants, like Missy Joe. We need more, as we've spent some isolated time in these past couple of years, more opportunities for us to come together and and more than just let's go to the bar and see a band, but oh, look at this art installation, look at this play, and there's also music a part of it, and uh, it's what's keeping us human. Treefort kicks off spring and summer tours for many local artists. But for the organizers who put together two festivals in just seven months due to pandemic disruptions, now comes some well-deserved R&R. Will Walkie, KHOL News.
The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for partly cloudy skies tonight with a low around 35 degrees. Tuesday should be mostly sunny with a high near 60 degrees. Winds could gust as high as 40 miles per hour. Tuesday night expect mostly cloudy skies with a low in the mid-30s. Wednesday should be sunny during the day and mostly clear at night with a high in the mid-50s and a low around 35 degrees. This has been the news for Monday, April 18th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206.